Welcome to Practical Forms of Self-Love with Jesh Durox, a mini-series focusing on 10 essential perspectives and practices to embody self-love. Here's Jesh. Good morning. This is day eight of my 10-day series, and uh, the theme of these 10 days has been practical self-love. And we've been exploring different topics and themes that are sometimes you know spoken of in kind of a cliche way and really wanting to break them open to get some kind of a juice out because beliefs are all well and good but the only thing that really interests me about beliefs is the way that it affects somebody's actions is there a tangible increase in quality of life to me that's the only indicator and so people say all kinds of things and i was actually just having a conversation about this last night with a friend you know that it's very tricky sometimes interacting with humans because we can say certain things, uh, but the place that we say things from, you know, the mind that generates words uh, also generates these kind of fictional realities. And that's what beliefs are. Beliefs are like fictional realities. It doesn't mean that they don't have truth sometimes, but it also means sometimes they don't have truth. So I think it's really valuable to sometimes knock a little bit, you know, on our belief system and uh, knock on some of the words that we're throwing around um, and really find out what they mean to us, you know. Today what I want to talk about, two kinds of perfect, and the theme is going to be self-judgment, or I should say maybe non-self-judgment as a form of practical self-love. So two kinds of perfect, what do I mean by that? I had this realization maybe three years ago and this has honestly been probably one of my biggest achievements so far in my life, um, as far as I'm concerned, is that I just don't judge myself very often anymore. And as small as that might seem, when you really look down to the base of it, many humans are constantly judging themselves, frequently and constantly judging themselves. And I want to look at what that does in certain scenarios. I want to look at scenarios where it's helpful. I want to look at scenarios where it's not helpful. More than anything else to remember about this is, this, is that self-judgment is invisible. And that's partly why it's, it's so powerful and, and so potentially dangerous. So learning how to keep ourselves from judging ourselves is a very powerful form of self-love. And I, I want to break into why you know, on a practical level. So let's do it. Let's dive in. So the very first subject I want to talk about under this theme, which is why I called it this, is two kinds of perfect. Usually when we talk about perfect, we're talking about the end of something. We're talking about the final completion. We're talking about the full circuit comes around and it's done. This kind of perfect can be like the end of a novel. It could be like the perfect meal is made. It could be like you finally found your person. You know, you finally found your partner. It could mean, um, you know, that you have trained for 22 years and you've now become the gold medalist in table tennis. That's a certain kind of a perfect. And usually when we say the word perfect, that's usually the one that we mean. Now, the problem with this kind of perfect is that it just doesn't happen very often, okay? Every single one of those things that I said, it's, it's the last few moments of a journey of thousands of moments, if not millions or billions of moments, okay? And so if a person is obsessed with that kind of perfect, 
and is constantly judging every single moment. And what is judgment really? Judgment is comparison. Okay, it's comparison between two things. So in and of itself, judgment is not bad. Judgment is not evil. It's often referred to in a negative kind of a way. And I think that's because when it is negative, you know, it has powerful consequences. But it, it actually, just at its very root, is just comparison. Okay, But when the mind, which is very interested in comparison, and the reason why it's interested in comparison is because the amygdala, which is the part I'm talking about now, which is your fight or flight center, you know, what they call the reptilian brain, this old piece in us that only cares about our survival, that's its only job is to worry about that, is constantly measuring everything around you, whether you're aware of it consciously or not, to could this kill me, could this kill me, could this kill me, could this kill me, could this kill me. Okay, and so that's why, you know, that part of the brain is so, you know, interested in, in judgment. Um, and of course, in this modern age, like we talked about in that podcast that I gave about save your fear for the bears, we don't really have bears to be afraid of anymore. I mean, I don't ever even really think I've been afraid of a bear, you know. <laughs> uh, but my ancestors were probably freaking terrified of them. And if one was running at me, I would also be terrified. But I just mean that this culture that we have has kind of cured us of, of bears and other such similar kind of, you know, scary things because we stay in the cities, etc., etc. So nowadays, what are our bears that we're afraid of? We're afraid of when our spouse is upset with us. We're afraid of what our boss, you know, could do if, if he was upset with us. We're afraid of maybe be re being rejected by like a friend group that we really wanted to be a part of. These things have become our bears. These have become the things that our brain has equated with you know, survival. And so the brain, you know, is constantly comparing every situation that happens, especially like in newer friendships or maybe newer work situations before you really feel familiar, before you have that confidence to feel like everything's going to be fine. When you first start dating somebody, every single thing that they said when they texted back, you know, or when they didn't text back, or was there a period at the end of the sentence or was there not? That emoji, what does that emoji mean? that part of the brain is the comparative brain and its job is to try to help you, you know, survive. So the problem with these two kinds of perfects, the first perfect specifically, is that a certain part of the brain is always wanting things to be perfect. It's wanting things to be finished. It's wanting things to be complete. And that piece is important to us because it helps us to finish things. And finishing things is a big part of, of being successful as a surviving species. If you just started running away from a bear, but yeah, you just couldn't muster the energy. You would die. So we might have had ancestors like that, but they died. The the ones, you know, that survived were the ones who finished running away from the bear until you were safe. There might have been ancestors who like wanted to make food, but eh, they weren't that into it. They died. So people who finish things definitely have a better chance of, of surviving, you know, than than um, than ones who don't. They, they just do. It is kind of an interesting aspect of, of today's culture that in so many ways we are supporting certain kind of personality types and characteristics in humans that fit now into a new kind of a social structure that we have where we can benefit from the characteristics and strengths of so many different people around us. You could have one person who is incredibly dedicated, incredibly resourceful, incredibly creative, and they can make something, they can invent something, they can end up shoring some of the weaknesses of a lot of other people who maybe didn't have a certain characteristic trait that 100 years ago or 500 years ago would have been absolutely vital. It's interesting how this co-creation that we're all, you know, a part of and 
the society that we're building together is really kind of it's kind of a, a, a new form of evolution, really, you know, the way that we're affecting each other and adapting to what each of us is bringing to the table is speeding up by so many, many degrees, which you could call the natural course of, of evolution. It's really quite fascinating. There's an amazing book by a guy named Yuval Harari called Sapiens. And to this day, it's still one of my favorite books I've ever read. It's just such a beautiful take on the history of humanity from a perspective of evolution, from a perspective of, of all of that stuff, you know, coming in. So, so moving on, two kinds of perfect. Okay, so the first kind of perfect only happens when something completes. And if you look at the whole journey of something, especially something big and important, you know, like you build a business, you find the one, you know, you find your partner, you finish your master's degree, you know, whatever. These are long, 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 long journeys. And so if you look at how many moments there are the entire time, and then you look at the very end moment that it's finished, that is only such a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of that whole journey. And so if the comparative mind comes in and every single moment says, is this done? Is it perfect? Is it perfect? Is it perfect? Is it perfect? What will it mostly have as a result back? Nope. 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 Okay. And it's kind of like if you've ever gone on a road trip as a kid, or maybe you have kids and you're going on this like six hour trip or 10 hour trip and the kids are like, are we there yet? And you're like, no. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? So there is a part of the brain in most of us that is just constantly looking for it, for that kind of a perfect. I think even dating is, is quite an interesting example of this because it used to be a long time ago. It's like you picked somebody or somebody was picked for you or somebody took you or whatever the deal was. And that was just your person. That's how you found your person. In this modern age, you know, where we have so many choices around us and we have apps, you know, that help us find even more. And then we have thousands of stories we're constantly surrounded with from books and films and movies to perfume ads telling us stories, you know, about how this is how life is supposed to look. If you have the perfect partner, they will say this, 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 and this, and they will do this, 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 and this, and they will never do this, 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 or this. And all of that information, you know, the brain takes in and just goes, all right, looking for perfect. And perfect keeps getting smaller, 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 more and more and more impossible. And the problem, of course, if, if you're looking for that first kind of perfect constantly, you're going to be disappointed almost constantly, almost constantly. Okay. I gave the example earlier in the series about um, Michael Jackson and how even somebody who's literally at the very top of his creative game, one of the most recognized artists in the entire world, one of the rec most recognized humans in the entire world, did so much for so many people, okay? Even somebody like him, how many moments of big impact could you list on a, on a page of him? Three, five, ten? If you're really into him, you might be able to list ten of the really great things that he accomplished and achieved. But probably most people would struggle to even do three. And here's one of the most famous, most powerful artists that, that we've had. So if the most powerful artist has like three moments that impacted all the rest of us enough that they're in our memory, 
what does that even say about a more regular life, okay? So what I'm trying to say there is that you could maybe in his life, and if you go deeper into it, of course you could find more, but I'm just talking about, you know, in, in large averages here, there might be three times, or let's just even be generous with him and say there was 10 times in his life where he achieved the first kind of perfection. He released the record and it had rave reviews. He won the Grammy. He did whatever it was that he had, he had that. Now, how long did he live? However long he lived, trillions and trillions and trillions of moments, but only like 10 of the moments were actually perfect. What does that mean for the rest of the life? It's just a waste. You just throw it out. And a lot of times there's a deep depression that really is, is embodied in people. It's, it's stuck in it. We're drowning in it. We're, we're trapped in it. And it's because this part of the brain is saying, is this a perfect moment? And the brain says, no, it's not a perfect moment. You don't have your partner or your partner's not treating you how he's supposed to treat you. Or your business really isn't as good as this other business that I saw on Instagram one time. Or what is wrong with your face? Why is it so puffy all the time? Other people don't seem to have puffy faces and you have such a puffy face. Ugh. <laughs> so there's so many things that we do that we're constantly saying, not perfect, not perfect, not perfect, not perfect, okay? That first kind of perfect gets us into a lot of trouble. It steals a lot of joy from us. And really the worst thing about it is it just burns up, it just burns up to ashes a really significant and super important part of our life, okay? That's the first kind of perfect. And again, I'm not even saying it's not without value. It is important to be able to recognize the completion of things. But it's much wiser to be able to recognize the completion of things when you're at the completion of things, okay? So instead of being the, the kid in the back of the car constantly saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? When you finally arrive, you're able to say, ah, oh, we're here. And you can get excited about that, okay? But the first part of are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? is it's a childlike mentality and, and not in the good way of childlike. It's in the annoying way. It's in the non-helpful way. It's in the ultimately kind of destructive way because what does that child continually asking that do to the parent? Wears them down, makes them frustrated, makes them angry, makes them less capable, you know, of being caring and supportive. And I think in a similar kind of a way, we do that to ourselves, constantly asking if we're there yet and not really just enjoying, you know, the whole process. So that's the first kind of perfect. The second kind of perfect is everywhere because the second kind of perfect is, it means it's a perfect place to begin. It's a perfect place to begin, okay? And that kind of perfect is literally surrounding us at all moments. And if you look for this kind of perfect, you can find it anywhere, you can find it at will. And if you can practice learning to take joy in the second kind of perfect, you will be a much happier camper, that's for darn sure. But not just an increase in happiness and an increase in joy, you will also find an increase in, uh, in self-confidence, an increase in faculty, an increase in learning. And let's, let's look at why, it's, it's a very practical reason, okay? Let's say you take a picture, let's say you're a photographer and you take a picture and it doesn't turn out the way that you want it to. If you're looking from the first kind of perfect, you look at it and say, oh, that's not the kind of picture that I really wanted. That's not at all like the picture of my favorite photographer, Samantha Bean. <laughs> oh, I'm so bad. I, I'm, why am I even doing this? This isn't good, blah, 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 okay? The second kind of perfect is you look at the picture and you, you recognize uh, that it wasn't the one, you know, that you necessarily wanted and you're like, Amazing. Okay, so I can see 
I need to work on this, this, and this. I got, I got the lighting right, I got the pose right, but you know what, that expression isn't exactly right, so I'm gonna work on that next. And you see, oh, it's a perfect place to begin. And so you can look at the first kind of perfect, and you can say, ah, oh, it's not perfect. Or you can look at that exact same image, and you can look at it, and you can say, ah, oh, perfect, perfect. <laughs> so if you cultivate that second kind of a perfect, what it's really doing is just allowing you to stay in your highest mind. We could call the lowest mind the part of the, the survival piece, which is super important. But the survival mind that does the fight or flight, it really only does fight or flight. And what you might not notice in that list is joy. You might also not notice self-respect. You might also not notice creativity. And of course, creativity and joy and bringing that to what we do is the central piece of a rich, fulfilled, meaningful life. And so without meaning to, many people are spending a lot of their time in the amygdala, a lot of time in their judgmental kind of mode of, of thinking. And they're silently stabbing themselves in the back. And it's, it's so hard because we just can't see this happening. We can't see it happening. And that's what's so tricky about it. I'm really into uh, virtual reality right now. I'm super excited about virtual reality. And I'm I'm into exploring ways that virtual reality can help us to see our consciousness because one of the hardest things about being a human is that the mind, which affects us more than any other factor by many, many times in our life, there's nothing in your life that will ever affect you more than your mind, okay? That is completely true. And then we know almost nothing about our mind. We know almost nothing about the thing that impacts us the most. And so what things do we tell stories about that impact us the most? Things we can see, okay? We can see Henry, who's not treating us right. We can see our mother always does this. We can see our kids who aren't enough this or are this or, or whatever. So that there's a lot of external projection on these things when really it's the mind, it's our own mind that is the biggest impact in what happens to us. Because a person could say, well, yeah, no, this, this actually really happened to me and this was a big deal and this did impact me. Of course it did. Things do happen to us. Yes, of course they do. But how the mind decides to respond to what happens to us is by far more impactful, by many, many degrees more impactful. And that's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to be aware of and it's because we can't see it. And the same is most definitely true for self-judgment and when we're judging ourselves. The importance of non-judgment, of non-self-judgment, is basically that it ends up giving you a space, okay? It ends up giving you a space. A judgment, one of the ways I describe it is like, it's like a knife, okay? And knives can be very important and very powerful, but there are some things that they're just not good at. And one of those is creativity. One of those is love. One of those is self-respect and, and connection and care, like all of that kind of stuff. A giant knife, bringing a giant knife to any of those situations, not gonna help with that. Can you imagine showing up to a date and being like, hi, my name is Jorge, here is my knife. You know, <laughs> not gonna help with that. So judgment is this invisible knife. And a way I like to explain that is, imagine you're this tiny little seed and you're just breaking out of, a, of your shell and you're starting to quest up, become a sapling. And as soon as you're a tiny little seed, a little sprout of a great oak tree, let's say, and it breaks the ground, and then it looks up at a great oak tree, you know, who's like a hundred years into their process, and compares itself and says, oh, well, that has 40 branches and I have no branches, and that has like 
2,000 leaves and I have only just this one tiny baby leaf, I'm not the right kind of thing. Judgment comes in like a knife, cuts that sapling down, okay? And then the seed tries to grow again. Same thing happens, compares, cuts down, cuts down, cuts down, cuts down, cuts down. So every time you judge yourself, it is literally a pruning. It's like you're slicing that down. And of course, what can we see happen here in this metaphor? If a seed breaks open and the sapling starts growing and you're never able to get past these first initial stages, you keep judging yourself. No, that's not it. That's not it. That's not it. The sapling never has a chance to grow. And practicing non-judgment is like giving yourself permission and space to grow and to change and for that to be slow and for it to look very different very, very, very different than the end result will end up looking like. And that's a big place that creatives just kick themselves in the foot all of the time, all of the time. Kick yourself in the foot. I've never heard that one. <laughs> it's a new one. You can use it. Let's pass it on. Kick yourself in the foot. Or, or don't, actually. But I have a lot of musician friends, and there's this thing in the musician kind of world that's called the sophomore slump. And the sophomore slump is where you release one record, it's your first record, everybody loves it. It's an unexpected hit. You know, you get world famous, you tour the world, etc, etc. And then your second record comes out and people don't really like it. They're disappointed. It wasn't what they hoped for. Very, very, very few bands end up making it past what they call the sophomore slump. And when you look at the reasons why, it's actually quite interesting because the sophomore slump basically happens for a few reasons. One is that the first record was usually made over like five or seven years. You collected all the best moments of five or seven years, whereas the second record is usually expected like in two years or something like that. Also, in the first record, you had nothing to lose because nobody knew who you were, and if this didn't work out, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. Now that you have this reputation to lose, now that you have this reputation to lose, now that there's an expectation on you, whoa, be careful, watch out, this could be dangerous. It becomes scary to us. Now we have something to lose. Our amygdala kicks in and says, maybe this is a bear, okay? Tricky stuff. And I think one of the third reasons is you now have very hard comparisons of how well this record is doing. Because when it's your first record, you're just happy for anybody buying it. And when it's the second record, you now have to compare to how well your record was doing last time in this cycle. So tricky kind of stuff, tricky kind of stuff. The Apostle Paul, who was arguably, you know, one of the most prolific people who spread the word about the message of Jesus, which was a very successful mission that he ended up doing, because look how huge Christianity ended up getting. You know, he was the one that took it outside of Israel and took it to a lot of the surrounding countries and territories. Whether or not you believe in the things that he shared, he was definitely a very powerful creative. <laughs> No question about that, and very successful at what he did. And he says something that's quite fascinating on the on the subject of judgment. And Jesus was a big advocate of non-judgment also, by the way. He, he basically said, here's the deal, guys. Don't judge anybody, and you won't be judged, which is a pretty amazing deal. And we could go deep into what that meant, in my opinion, but I think to just summarize it, I think he was saying, if you stay outside of the judgmental part of the mind you just won't be thinking about comparison and judgment constantly. There's a famous kind of anonymous saying that comparison is, is the thief of joy. 
And that's very, very true. And what that means to me, if we break open that cliche, is that the place of the mind that generates uh, judgment is a different piece than the part that generates joy. And so when you're in the one and you're generating comparison and judgment, you're literally cut off from experiencing joy. So I'm not putting judgment down. There, there are important reasons to judge, and we'll get to those a little bit later. But a lot of people spend too much time in it. It's kind of like saying it's a bathroom. I'm not putting bathrooms down. Thank God there's bathrooms. I mean, it would be a messy, messy world if these cities that we have didn't have bathrooms. So super thankful for bathrooms. But you don't want to spend all of your time in the bathroom. It's like it's a place you want to go to and it's a place you want to leave. And ideally, it's a place that you go to get rid of stuff that you don't want anymore. And it's not a place that you hang out in. It's not really a place that you create in very much. The bathroom is a place you just want to have and not spend that much of your life in. And in this metaphor, most humans on the planet are spending not just a little bit of time in the bathroom, most of their life is spent in the bathroom. Most of their life is spent in this small, cramped space that is really just meant for letting things go. Uh, so Paul says this, he says, guys, I don't even judge myself. I don't even judge myself. Jesus talking about don't judge other people. And Paul's like, dudes, I don't even judge myself. It's really, really brilliant. And when I first really realized the power of that, it was actually quite like explosive to me because when you are thinking of judgment, you know, and especially in the negative connotation, we're usually talking about how it affects other people. But there are actually three kinds of judgments I want to talk to you about just to kind of give you a little bit of language to consider all of this. And the first kind of judgment I call an arbitrary judgment. Okay. And the second I call a relational judgment. And the third, I call an intrinsic judgment, okay? So an arbitrary judgment is like somebody looks at you, and you're at a Home Depot, and you're trying to pick out blinds. Your partner's like, do you like this shade of taupe or this shade of taupe? And you don't really care too much about it, so you're like, nah, that one. That's an arbitrary judgment. Those are the easiest to make, and they have the least amount of impact on us, okay? A relational judgment gets much more serious because a relational judgment means that you are making a judgment about something that you feel affects you in some way, that you have your egoic identity tied to in some kind of a way, okay? An example of a relational judgment might be, who is your best friend? Is Peter a better friend to you or is Samson a better friend to you? Who's the better friend? And most people wouldn't be like, no, 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 Samson. And they will think about things that Samson and Peter or whatever have done to them. And they will, they will consider it and they'll go, all right, okay, yeah, I can, um, I think Samson, okay? So you see how that kind of judgment, that relational judgment, it carries a heavier weight. So it's a more important thing to be aware of when we are making relational judgments because they affect us, okay? But... The most powerful of all forms of judgment, I call intrinsic judgments. And these are judgments that are made by yourself about yourself. They're intrinsic, which means that they're, they're inside of you. They're a part of your, they become a part of your nature. And the most dangerous thing about these is that they are the least visible of, of all of them because both of the other two kind of involve other people. And so even though it is true we make judgments silently about other people, especially if they're people close to us or in our vicinity, they can often end up telling in some kind of a way that we have a judgment about them. If you've been with your partner for more than a day, you know if they're not, if they're not happy with you, okay? You just know. We just, we're, we're wired to know that about each other. 
in that knowing, in that awareness that the other can have of our judgments, we can see our own judgments a little bit easier and they can see it and then it can come to light and then maybe it can be addressed, okay? Intrinsic judgments have a deep possibility of just forever staying lodged inside of the system because who's going to call you out on it? What's an example of an intrinsic judgment, okay? Let's go back to you and your best friend. Who do you think is better looking, you or your best friend? Who do you think is more talented, you or your best friend? Who do you think has a more loving partner, you or your best friend? Those kind of questions, oh, those go even lower. You know, sometimes those hit our gut and we're like, oh, I don't know. And when you go down to that idea of like hitting the gut, what we're really talking about is hitting the ancient survival system. And if you felt anything at all when I asked those questions, especially a tenseness or a, a seriousness, it's really interesting that some words trigger, oh, it doesn't really matter. Others are like, oh, that's kind of important. And other ones are like, oh, be careful. So if you really pay attention to your body, your beautiful, beautiful, beautiful body, it will give you the signals to help you to see and understand and build a relationship with what's happening in the mind. And I love the mind and I love the body. And I especially love how these two things can interconnect in powerful ways. And whoever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever your dream is, creating a connection between the mind and the body, it's going to be the most you know, important thing you can do. You can also add in spirit in there too, if you want to leave room for the X, which was one of our, um, one of our other talks that we gave on this series of practical forms of self-love. Learning how to connect those things really brings the most out of both of them. I think what's happened a lot is people have been living in their minds. They have objectified the entire body. They have slammed the body with many, many judgments. They have, as a whole, not been super kind and supportive and loving of this beautiful thing, let alone go into a deep exploration of it. And it's only in the deep exploration of the body that you start learning all of the other incredible things that the body can do, such as express and bring to life, bring into the shared world, bring into shared reality, the contents of the mind, which is exactly what art is. You write a book, you're putting out into the shared reality contents of the mind. And now you can look at that. Now you can see it. Now you can make adjustments on it. I've often said, you know, kind of jokingly, but it has a lot of truth to it, that I've been to more Jesh workshops than anyone on the planet. And uh, teaching is an incredible way to learn because as I'm sharing with you guys what I've learned about these subjects, it's coming out of me and I can hear it and I can see it and I can say, oh yeah, that made sense. Oh, maybe I need to say this better. And as I'm refining it, which by the way is judgment, it's a beautiful form of judgment is refining, which I'll get to in a little bit. Uh, I'm able to make better decisions myself about all of these things, okay? So these three kinds of judgment, arbitrary, relational, and intrinsic, I think it could be a really beautiful practice to pay attention to when you're making judgments, when you're making comparisons, and really check in which of those is that. And just understand that there's an increasing level of importance with each step as, as you go down. So... I was speaking to my friend Rasuli the other day, and we had, we're doing a podcast together, which I'm really excited about releasing uh, soon, maybe in the next couple months. And uh, something really kind of beautiful came up around the subject of judgment. And he was basically saying that, you know, judgment is for survival. That's what judgment is for. Judgment is for you walk into a room, you have to figure out which one is the door. That's what judgment is for. You look at a bunch of food on a plate, which is the food, which is the plate. That's judgment. And that's healthy, beautiful kind of judgment that supports life. But he said, you can't judge infinite things. 
Judgment is not made for infinite things. And as soon as you start trying to use judgment on infinite things, you're going to veer off, okay? And humans are infinite. The creative energy is infinite. God is, is infinite. Love is infinite. And as soon as we start trying to mix all that in, we just veer. We just veer off and it starts getting into uh, illusions of all kinds, you know? So where does judgment really come in as a helpful piece? It comes in in the form of the editor, but it has to know its role, okay? So in, in some of my workshops, I explain this difference between the explorer and the editor and the animal and how these are the three core pieces of the mind as, as I see them and understand them in a very simplistic kind of a form, just to help us to understand which of these modes we're in. The explorer creates, the editor judges what is created, you know, and can refine, can cut off what is created. And the animal mind is just basically made to make sure we keep breathing and eating and, you know, having babies and living enough to do this kind of stuff. So the explorer part of the mind is the part that, that generates joy and creativity, etc., etc. The editor part of the mind can only work with something that's already been created. And it doesn't have joy. It's a joyless thing. And it doesn't create anything at all. And a lot of times people get stuck in their editor mind and they will just live for years and years and years in that editor mind. And remember, the editor mind is like the bathroom. It's the place to let things go. It's the place with a knife. So let's imagine there's an author and they're writing a book, okay? And their editor is standing right behind their shoulder, watching every word, judging as it's being written. And you can see how ridiculous that would be. You can see how non-helpful that would be. The artist says, once upon a time there was, and the editor says, no, 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 that's stupid. We're not starting that way. Backspace, 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 backspace. It was a dark and stormy night. Dark and stormy, I don't know. Maybe this should be lighter. You could see how the artist would start becoming more and more frantic and more and more scared or more frustrated. It's like that little sapling we were talking about in the knife and the knife comes and cuts it all down again and again and again. So the role of the editor is firstly just to stay freaking silent, <laughs> to stay silent, okay? And then allow the creator to create. And once there's something out, once there's a chapter out, now let the editor come in and say, Okay, how does this compare to where we're really hoping to get? Let's just trim this a little bit. Let's trim. Editing should be trimming. Judgment, helpful judgment, should just be trimming. And it should make something more beautiful. When your judgment is used to hurt yourself or to hurt somebody else, we have veered off. We have veered off. And a lot of us are using this knife, you know, and constantly comparing ourselves to other people that it's, it's, not, it's not fair to be compared to for so many reasons. We're like that little sapling sometimes looking at, you know, the journey of a person who's gone on a 40-year process and gone like, oh, my work isn't as good as that work. Of course it's not as good as that work. Of course it's not. When you look at almost anybody who's being featured in any kind of a way or celebrated in any kind of a way, there is years and years and years of hard work in there and dedication that is just... <sighs> is just not replaceable. One of my favorite quotes is by Jay-Z. He says, people uh, emulate the end result, but they don't emulate the process. And that just gives me chills because it's just so powerful and it's so beautiful. To find what those powerful artists found, you have to go on the journey of them. You have to go on this, this path and this quest that is, is never 
is never easy. It's, it's never going to be easy. It's this long-term thing. It's a, it's a long journey. And when you come in with the editor and you keep chopping it off, you just don't go on that journey. And so a lot of people just want to skip to the end, which is the first kind of perfect. And they want to they wanna just make an, a gold record on one, two, three, make a gold record. And it just does not work like that. So the very last thing I want to talk about here is something I like to say, which is to question authority, okay? And so when you do find yourself in a judgment um, of some kind, it's important to maybe just to question the authority of that judgment. And authority is an interesting word because it has the word author in it. And so to question authority basically means who wrote this? Who came up with this idea? Okay, and a, a very clear example of that could be a, a woman who is not feeling great about their body, let's just say. And maybe they take good care of themselves, you know, and they eat healthily and they exercise and still like their body doesn't stand up to whatever standard is the latest on, you know, Instagram or on the Revlon commercial or, or whatever. And they feel bad about themselves. The only reason you're feeling bad in that moment is because your brain is passing a judgment on yourself, on, on your body. I'm not putting you down for that because it's a very normal thing to, to happen and everybody has our own versions of that. But if we don't get free of that, if we don't get free of that, every single time we see that comparison, and remember, as I told you earlier in the talk, there's a part of the mind that's always looking for that, it's always questing for that. Is it perfect? Is it perfect? Is it perfect? If we allow that to keep happening, and then we don't question the authority of why is there this standard? Who says I have to look like any certain thing? You know, who says that? Who says that? Then we can just stab ourselves again and again. We can use this knife that's supposed to help us get sharper and more refined. We can use it to hurt ourselves. It's a very, very powerful form of practical self-love to just give yourself a space. And something really beautiful I learned actually last year uh, when I was in India, I think some of you guys know that story, you know, of me getting up and dancing naked on a stage as a way of wanting to show what it feels like to step into something I've never done before, <laughs> exploring. One of the things I, I thought about, you know, because like I'm in, I'm in good shape, I take good care of myself, but I'm not some supermodel good shape. And one of my concerns about going on stage and doing that before I did it was, oh no, there's going to be these videos of me and I'm not in the best shape in the world and people are going to look at me and say, oh, he's not in the best shape in the world. And I was thinking about that, but I questioned the authority on that. I questioned the authority and I was like, you know what? I'm not beautiful because somebody else thinks I'm beautiful. I'm beautiful because my body feels beauty. Because what does beautiful mean? Beautiful means full of beauty. That's what beautiful means. I'm not beautiful because other people think that I'm beautiful. And if that's my form of beauty, I will become a beggar, constantly asking, do you think I'm beautiful? Do you think I'm beautiful? Do you think I'm beautiful with this little cup? Depending upon other people, you know, to, to fill that. And if instead I say, no, 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 I'm full of beauty because I have experienced beautiful memories because I can write a text to a friend or to a loved one full of what I mean about them and what how much they mean to me and what I appreciate about them, what is beautiful to me in them. I can send that out. And as I'm writing that text, I will feel full of beauty. I can read one of the great works. As I'm reading these passages, tears are flowing down my face. My body is producing beauty. It's producing beauty. I'm beautiful because 
I make beauty. My, my body makes beauty. I, I not only generate it internally, I make things that are beautiful things, you know? And so that was an example of me questioning that authority. And when I looked at it that, that way, I felt a freedom to be able to do something that was very scary, would have been for most people. And that was to, at the end of the talk in front of a creative conference, as a way to illustrate my point. By the way, if you don't know that whole story, that probably sounds like it's out from left field, but I was giving a talk called Things I Learned While Running Naked in the Sahara Desert that comes from a really beautiful story that, that I lived earlier in my life. And instead of just telling people, face your fears, venture into the unknown, you know, I wanted to show them what that looked like because I'm super into embodying. All right, guys, question authority. Give yourself space. It's a really great way to love yourself. And that's actually, I think, one of the things that I'm, I've gotten pretty good at over the last 10 years. I just don't often judge myself. I can recognize the spaces that I need to change and improve and grow great, but I just don't spend a lot of time in self-judgment anymore. And that has been a really, really big blessing for me and just allowed me room, allowed me room to take my little sapling and just grow it and I start to see more and more branches. And in the process of time, without judgment, you will grow to be a very tall tree. You will be like the great mighty oak we've been talking about. You will produce tons of seeds every year. And the coolest thing is you won't even be trying. It'll just be a natural state. <sighs> All right, thanks guys for hanging on for that one. You have a beautiful day. I will see you tomorrow. Forms of Self-Love with Jesh D. Rocks is produced by Jesh D. Rocks and edited by Elizabeth Windham. Our theme music is by Kai Kai. It's called Celeste from the album Fantasize. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you know someone who would appreciate this mini-series, we encourage you to share it, screenshot it, and airdrop it to your friends, family, and general community. You can find Jesh at Jesh D Rocks on Instagram and Facebook.